KBLA Talk 1580. Um, it's my honor and my pleasure to welcome in one of the top uh, civil rights attorneys in the nation. She's an author and a public intellectual known for fighting systemic inequality with lawsuits that have helped millions in poor neighborhoods. The cases she's led have won one over ten billion dollars in monetary damages and policy changes and they include the largest civil rights settlement in u.s history in the bus riders union versus mta class action suit she's won over 50 major awards uh, la magazine called her the voice for la's oppressed and of course she's a former member as i always point out of president barack obama's task force on 21st century policing attorney connie rice good morning Hey, Dominique. Great to be with you. How are you? Um, great. Great to have you on. Um, how are you doing? I'm doing fine. As I say, I'm blessed, but the country's stressed, right? <laughs> <laughs> yes, indeed it is. Well, uh, you've written an op-ed for the L.A. Times, and um, it's. I think it's really interesting, and I love that you did this because I feel like, as I said earlier, we're at a crossroads. We're about to pick a new district attorney, and the mayor's about to pick a new police chief. Uh, it doesn't get more pivotal than that, does it? Not for criminal justice, it doesn't. That's right. So um, you said you start off by saying the next chief of the L.A. Police Department will need to be a turnaround wizard. And despite the fact that you've spent plenty of time both suing and working with the LAPD, you say um, you don't think the department is in a good place right now. No, it's not. Uh, we've we've really gone back. I think we had two chiefs, and not just the chiefs. You have to have the community working with the problem-solving cops, and that's when you start to see changes, when you have inside a department kind of they look themselves in the mirror and say, okay, we've gone too far. We need to reach out and try something different. That's what happened with Chief Bratton and with Chief Charlie Beck and with the Watts Gang Task Force and with uh, a number of public housing project um, um, civilian councils for safety. They've organized themselves community by community, working with the cops who see the community in terms of the human beings, who see the community in terms of instead of just being a stage in which to make promotions in the SWAT, they actually see poor communities and public housing projects and, and, and immigrant centers as full of human beings who deserve empathy and help. Those are the cops I'm talking about. I'm not talking about the cops that everybody is marching against. So when those cops bond with community leaders, street leaders, as well as institutional leaders, neighborhood by neighborhood, and they do safety plans, Dominique, you get away from the mass incarceration suppression that the brilliant Michelle Alexander wrote about in the new Jim Crow. And you get toward, you go get away from that slave-derived policing, slavery-derived policing, into 21st century policing, which is about actually serving the community rather than incarcerating the community. So we got away from all that with this new with chief moore and he brought back the old guard there's nothing you know if you want what i just talked about to happen you can't have the old guard enforcers because they'll go back to the days of gaslighting you and they'll tell you yeah trust trust community community but then behind the scenes they're destroying the community safety partnership projects 
They are targeting the problem-solving officers who are close to the community. They're driving out African-American. And I don't say this they're doing it intentionally. They're just allowing the elements that are racist inside of policing to take over the culture, and they're not pushing back against them. That's what my editorial says. Current leadership in LAPD has utterly failed. In fact, they've papered over and suppressed complaints from African-American officers, black officers in LAPD, who have said, look, we're seeing stuff on social media that's clearly anti-black, clearly anti-Black Lives Matter. We're seeing stuff that is, we're, we're getting challenged. They're at, African-American officers report daily. They get, they get challenged. Their loyalty, you are with us, are you with them? So LAPD is sheltering binary racial thinking, and the leaders are actually on record telling people we don't talk about race because talking about gender and race creates problems. That's the mindset that my editorial is written to oppose. We don't talk about it, so we just um, just pretend everything's fine um, because you you describe these sort of small group sessions uh, after you know problem incidents where people sit around and they do what? <laughs> it's the silliest thing I've ever heard of. The the, the the small dialogue sessions that were suggested were after the Oscar Joel Bryant Foundation, which represents black officers. OJB sent a letter, or, or they did a survey. They did a survey of their membership asking, have you seen racist social media on LAPD officer social media sites? And a vast majority of the African-American officers who were surveyed said, oh, yeah, and here are the examples. <laughs> there, were, there were jokes about George Floyd's murder. There were, there, there were, there were, they were calling Black Lives Matter advocates terrorists and savages and animals. I mean, it was just ridiculous. This over-the-top backlash against 20 million Americans marching the summer um, George Floyd was murdered. Those marches rattled the, the extremist elements in policing and really upset them. You want to know why? Because the, most of the marchers were white. That really rattled, that, that got to the core of policing. I've seen police chiefs I've worked with, it's like they, they couldn't figure out what was going on because it wasn't just African-Americans and people of color protesting. We don't matter. We can protest and riot all we want. That's kind of built into the model. <laughs> you mm. expect riots every 10, 15 years. It's just built into the model. But white people protesting, that got their attention. So within law enforcement, the George Floyd protest marches really aggravated and tripped off a lot of virulent pushback, which took form in, in anti-black statements, anti-black behavior, kind of licensed the MAGA cops, the Make America White Again cops, uh, to kind of come out of their, their shells and start challenging black officers. Dominique, to me, African-American cops, African-American police officers are the canaries in the coal mine of policing. What happens to them will tell you what's going to happen in the community ten times worse. Okay, And when you have a leadership of a police department that is cruel, indifferent, uh, Machiavellian, kind of narcissistic, the leaders don't care about the officers, they care about themselves and their power and their control. They kill the messenger. They don't want anybody bringing up any problems. They punish officers who raise their hand and say, look, we need to talk about this racial stuff because 
Black Lives Matter is raising legitimate issues, which is what 68% of black cops feel. Well, 77% of white cops feel that Black Lives Matter is not, and that the George Floyd protests were not for a good reason. But the majority of African-American cops do. And so I look at them as a bellwether. I look at them as a canary in the, in, in the coal mine of policing. And when they are under siege, when African-American cops are under siege, Houston, we've got a problem. I mean, I, I feel like that was why the whole Christopher Dorner um, incident touched such a nerve here in L.A. because it was a black cop. Obviously, what he did wasn't justified, but it touched a nerve in terms of the pressures inside the department for black cops. But on the other hand, we see data that shows black cops kill more black people than cops who aren't black. So how do you parse that? We, uh, yeah, I'm talking to you generally. You have to go for the African-American officers who are, there are two ways to survive in American policing if you're an African-American officer. You can be bluer than blue, just go even 10 miles further than, than the most mm-hmm. um, pro-enforcement, aggressive, proactive suppression officers. That's a legitimate form of policing. It's not what the community wants. It's not what you and I want. But it's a valid form. Suppression containment is a valid form. It's enforcement. Then you've got the African-American cops who are what I call the inside agitators, the Tom Bradleys, the Jess Brewers, you know, the, the officers who, who within their culture, they're trying to change policing from the inside. And they're whistleblowers. Those are the officers I represented when I was Western Regional Counsel for the NAACP Legal Defense Fund 100 years ago. <laughs> And, um, <clears throat> excuse me, so you have, you have the inside agitators. I'm talking about the inside agitators who really do care more about the community than, than their progress within the profession, uh, really want to give back. They became cops because LAPD officers bothered them when they were teenagers, <laughs> stopped them all the time. You interview most African-American officers, they'll tell you, I became a cop to stop this stuff because I got stopped myself, you know? <laughs> So those are the officers that I'm talking about. And while I fully understand folks who say it's it's absolutely hopeless, I the lane that the you know the lane I've chosen is to try to make the good aspects of safety cops, uh, community investment cops, the kinds of cops like uh, Deputy Chief Imada Tingarides. Those kinds of officers need support from the outside, and and that's my role. I'm not you know. There are a lot of roles, and there are outside roles that can need to argue for different things. But right now, the battle inside, I'm describing the battle inside policing. There is a civil war inside of policing for the soul of American policing. Do we go back and continue the containment suppression policing that descended directly from slavery? Or do we, do we force the profession of policing to move into the 21st century and go for safety, holistic investment? help the community build safety rather than enforce mass incarceration, which destroys the community. Talking with attorney Connie Rice, uh, the opinion piece is called Before Los Angeles Gets a New Police Chief. Here's what we need to know. And I want to dive a a lot deeper into this because I think for those of us who are voters, those of us who should have a say and a voice with our mayor, our city council, and our police commission, we do need to know these things. Continuing the conversation when we come forward on KBLA Talk 1580. She's reclaiming her time on KBLA Talk 1580. More First Things First with Dominique DePrima when we come forward. 
the conversation continues right now, right now, right now with right now. Dominique DePrima on First Things First. And we're talking with uh, civil rights attorney Connie Rice. She's also an author. The book is Power Concedes Nothing, One Woman's Quest for Social Justice in America from the Courtroom to the Kill Zones. Attorney Connie Rice, um, looking at this op-ed, you are talking about, you know, the internal, what you're calling a civil war inside a Los Angeles police department probably is found in other police departments. I'm sure you recall um, some years ago, the FBI had uh, put out a report saying that there was a danger of white supremacy infiltrating uh, law enforcement <laughs> agencies across the country. We saw that play out on January 6th. Um, and you quote one black officer saying we're back to the days of Rodney King, that vitriol, that toxicity. Um, but the way you describe it, it sounds like there's some officers that have a positive mindset of or, or embrace a community policing model um, and some that are more in the, you know, suppress and contain model. But where does that uh, leave the question of systems, Right. Because I know that there are plenty of cops that get into the business because they want it. They want to make a difference. They want to help. Um, but then you can get channeled into a system that churns out uh, people that you know suppress and contain at best, and at worst, follow a white supremacist path. Well, I think the whole system, the system of policing, the culture of policing, the profession of policing has a kind of schizophrenic, they have the reality that, that actually is Genesis, their beginning, their roots, which of course was in suppression containment of the plantation. You had to get control of the slaves if you were a slave owner. And um, I'll never forget taking Chief Bratton to a slave artifact store that used to be called uh, Sable Images. It was at Vernon and, and Slauson, you know, right um, uh, right down the street, Vernon Crenshaw, right down the street from the old Urban League building. And I took him to it because I, I was having a fight with him about the origins of American policing. I said it came from slavery. He said it came from London, England. And I said, <laughs> no, no, that's not American policing. And I took him to this, took, took him to the store, Dominique, and, and, and there was a cabinet of plantation police badges. And the the owner took out he asked the owner to take out about seven or eight of them. And then he laid his LAPD chief's badge next to the plantation badges. And he said, now I see what you're talking about. It is directly, it was the same badge, the exact same badge. Only around the edge, instead of city of Los Angeles, was Greenacres Plantation or Alfred Plantation or Winston Plantation. And so that was how, you know, I, I, I got him to focus on their origin. So we're dealing with a system, all of us, all of us, no matter what race, no matter what neighborhood we come from, we inherited a system that is rooted in plantation control. And you create ghettos and barrios and Native American reservations for populations that the larger society never intends to include. That's what a ghetto means. And, and I use that old-fashioned word just as a kind of catch-all for very, excuse me, very poor hot spots where nothing works. You have no contract with government. Uh, schools don't work. You don't care if the kids have medical care. They don't, you don't care if the elders have 
can get their eyes checked and their blood pressure checked. There's nothing there. There, there are no hospitals. There are no banks. There are no. We know the hotspots we're talking about, and they're kind of zones of despair. They're deserts. They're food deserts. They're opportunity deserts. They're job deserts. You and I, and the community knows what what we're describing. So in those areas, you still get the containment suppression. And and so what the fight in policing is, is about is, do we continue to do what's easier, which is just enforcement? Uh, or do we do the more complex strategy of comprehensive safety, where instead of going after every teenager in baggy pants and putting them in the gang database, you actually connect with the community, create a safety and health coalition that goes after safety. And and what we've proven over 15 years of doing a, co- a comprehensive wraparound safety strategy, which seeks to reduce violence, reduce trauma, not increase arrests. An arrest is a failure for the cops who do this kind of policing. But instead, go after the root causes that cause the kind of crime. And Now, I'm not I'm not excusing any of the individual responsibility, whatever. You do the crime, you do the time, as far as I'm concerned. But what we're talking about are the conditions, the Petri dish that produces the kind of, the kind of pathology that we see. It's not by accident. And so do you want policing that helps solve that or helps make it worse? And the people I'm talking about in policing want to, want to make the community better. They want to make policing better. They want health and safety rather than mass incarceration and enforcement. That's the war that's going on. And and you bring up a really important point, which is what is it that kind of drives this stuff? It's much bigger than policing. If you're going after individual cops, you're missing the ballgame because the police are simply the instruments of society's decisions. This country was given a choice to get off the new Jim Crow highway. They were given an exit ramp. It was called the Kerner Commission. And, you know, maybe most of your audience is as old as I am. I don't know. But for younger folks, they're not even going to know what we're talking about. The Kerner Commission was the biggest national commission put together to take a look at the rebellions, uprising, civil unrest that exploded from 65 to 71. And for those of you who want the history, read Dr. Elizabeth Hinton's book on, on, on all of the race riots, the race rebellions against mass incarceration and mass criminalization. Because after Martin Luther King Jr. and that horrible year in 68 when we had all those assassinations, after he was murdered, you had the biggest explosion in our biggest cities. But what we don't understand is that black communities across the country, Dr. Hinton documents this, there were, there were, there were, there were nearly 2,000 civilian rejections of the LBJ, President Johnson, President Nixon formulation of war on crime, war on drugs in poor communities as a way of containing and suppressing. It was kind of like, why are these people rioting? Well, the Kerner Commission came back and said something to President Johnson he didn't want to hear. He wanted to be given a report that said, yes, you need to suppress, you need to contain, you need to lock up all these people who are rioting. And the Kerner Commission said they're not rioting. They're rebelling against vicious anti-black exclusion from all of the economic opportunity. 
people are, are, are rising up and protesting and destroying a system that all they're saying is they want to join that system. They're not trying to destroy the system. So you've got to change three things. The Kerner Commission said change your policing from the vicious Southern-style oppressive racist policing that is, that is violent and is not there to make anybody in that community safe. Change your policing. Second thing was end the systemic, obvious, institutionalized, systemic exclusion of African Americans from all opportunity, economic, political, any kind of opportunity you can think of, African Americans are systematically locked out of. It's an extension of our, of our, of our repressive post-slavery reinstitution of black oppression. You need to get rid of that. And the third thing is do a Marshall Plan. Invest like all get out into inner cities that we have defunded. So it's really refund the community, end the racist policing, and end white exclusion, systemic exclusion of African Americans from opportunity. That was the Kerner Commission. That was our off-ramp. What did we do instead? The country said, no, we're going to continue down the road of the new Jim Crow. We're going to do, we're going to build prisons. We're going to do mass incarceration. We're going to do a war on drugs that targets black communities, communities of color, and poor white communities, because you have the crack cocaine economy, but you also have a methamphetamine economy out in Antelope Valley. So it's, it's almost like a war on poor people. So all of that said, policing is simply the instrument of those decisions. And I'll never forget Chief Charlie Beck, who was uh, the chief before Chief Moore for LAPD. Chief Charlie Beck said something that, that, that sort of finished my sentences on this point. He said, until the United States recognizes that it creates ghettos and barrios and sends police into ghettos and suppress what a ghetto is designed to create, which is despair, until we face that reality, nothing's going to change because we're a bunch of hypocrites. Mm-hmm. So your question turns on those issues. Your, your, your question goes right to the heart of the matter. It's more than systemic. It's that it's design. It's malignant design. <clears throat> and I'm not saying that people are sitting up in some room, smoke-filled room, saying, this is how we're going to get black people. I wish, I wish the larger society cared enough about black people to even think about us. That's what segregation does. You don't have to think about it because you don't see them. Mm. Yeah, we'll continue after news, traffic, and sports. We're talking with attorney Connie Rice, and you're listening to KBLA Talk 1580. Say the quiet part out loud. loud. KBLA Talk 1580. <laughs> Heard any other talk radio lately that sounds anything like this? We didn't think so. You're listening to Unapologetically Progressive, KBLA Talk 1580. Wow, okay, I can't believe we're halfway through this conversation with attorney Connie Rice, and I've got like 75,000 questions that I haven't had a chance to ask yet. I'm going to try to get to as many of them as uh, I can. And this conversation is based on uh, Connie Rice's op-ed before Los Angeles gets a new police chief, here's what we need to know. Um, one of the things you mention, uh, well, let, let's deal with the racism piece. The racism inside the department, you talked about like the Civil War and, and w- what black officers are going through now. Um, and you talked about, you know, how, we've talked about how slavery, dis- slavery impacts still our modern uh, policing because uh, it is <laughs> descended from that, and a lot of us thought, you know, when uh, when Chief Moore was selected, that maybe that would be we would get another black chief. Um, 
you know, I, uh, he, Bill Scott was William Scott, who's now the chief in San Francisco, was someone at the time who was in contention that seemed like a, a great candidate to me. Maybe, though, you could say, well, we had, uh, <laughs> we had, you know, Willie Williams and we had Bernard Parks and we still have problems in the department. The mayor has said she doesn't feel pressure to appoint the first woman or the first Latino or the, you know, or another African-American chief. But how do you see that in terms of what, what would bring the most progress? Is it that we need somebody who's not black, who's progressive or who's not a woman or not a Latino who can get these changes made or, or, you know, does that make a difference? Would it make a difference? A single demographic, like whether you're a woman or whether you're African-American or whether you're Mexican-American, a single demographic factor like that never tells you what you need to know. Um, it's got to be, I look more at, are you a problem solver? Are you mission-driven? Do Are you mission-driven to change policing to serve poor people? Do you embrace safety-driven policing rather than enforcement and mass incarceration-driven policing? Is your career, throughout your career, have you demonstrated speaking truth to power within policing and bearing the consequences? Because you have to be brave to be any kind of cop in policing and saying, you know, we need to change what we do. What we do in poor communities is not right. Does the, does, does the chief have a vision that's shared by the mayor has the mayor you know this you know mayor bass has a vision for a holistic safety she's already created a department for community safety she's the first mayor to do that in la and i'm thinking of that as a as a as a footprint to develop a new kind of policing department because i don't think that the right kind of policing we're talking about can be incubated inside of a paramilitarized mass incarcerated designed um, a force that does that kind of policing in poor communities. Because the other thing we haven't talked about is that I'm only talking about the kind of policing that's done in what cops will call hot zones. You're right. Uh, high crime, high poverty, high violence, high trauma, but also very, very rich in human assets, very, very rich in community uh, 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 institutions and community drive, community mindset. And so, you know, you've got, but, but they're, but they're specialized areas because that's where we allow children to dodge bullets to get to school. We don't allow that in neighborhoods like mine. <laughs> right. So I'm talking, I'm talking right. About and, 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 and it goes to the question of training because, you know, it's, uh, we always hear we need more and more and more training, which means more and more and more budget dollars, but the same training yields different res- results in what you're calling or what you're saying they call hot spots as opposed to, you know, uh, non-hotspots in wealthier communities, same police training, completely different results. That's right. And, and people go to training. They go to bad apples. They go to, it's, not, it's not the bad apples. It's not, it, training's important, but that's not what these problems are about. These problems go to what we were talking about a little bit earlier, in that this is the design. If you create a high-poverty, high-low-opportunity uh, area where the schools don't work, the hospitals are inadequate, where people can't have a bank or a good grocery store where they can get healthy food. You're talking about the areas that the, that the Kerner Commission said do a Marshall Plan for, remember? Yep. That we decided not to do that. 
we decided to let these places sink further and further, and we were going to do more and more law enforcement and suppression. Well, to get out of that, you can't just talk about training cops. That that's that's like looking at Jeffrey Dahmer and talking about table manners. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so you're kind of missing the yeah, point. Here. Yeah, you know, he, his table manners may need improving. But your problem is that he's a cannibal. You know? Right, exactly. You know, the, the, the problem is just much bigger. And so we're focusing on policing. But I've always, and I've said this to, to a number of folks, if you're focusing on the cops, you're missing the systemic. And you've got to go to the fact that we're getting the policing we ask for. And we've got to find the people who are within that profession who want to change that equation. Well, the the other thing you point, there's a lot of things that we haven't gotten to yet. But one of the things you point out that I've noticed um, becoming a bigger problem is the, um, this is a quote from, I guess, an officer, the element of anti-black Latino cops within the system. I'm seeing more and more of the killings of black folks that are being done by Latino cops um, and how they fit into the system. There's never, you know, we've never had a Latino chief either, but if that, you know, if that, is, is happening in police departments the way it's happening in prisons, uh, that's a huge problem. Well, as you pointed out a little bit earlier, African-American officers also have higher levels because they're, they're, they're policing in higher, uh, with communities in communities that have higher percentages of African-American and Latino residents. So if you're in an area that is segregated and, and is known as a black area or a Latino area or an immigrant area, you're going to have cops who do practice in those areas and do their policing in those areas are obviously going to have more interactions with the public. So I don't that those are prima facie stats, kind of the first level statistics. I'm, what, what I focus on is I have worked with white officers, Latino officers, uh, African-American officers, female officers, any kind of demographic you want, who are problem solvers, community-oriented, and whom the community says they want, okay? They're, they're, they, you know, that's not limited to race. I've also worked with African-American officers who were bluer than blue and didn't care about any of the stuff that you and I care about. They were there to be cops. They wanted to get into SWAT. They played the game, the blue, blue game. You know, I'm a cop first. I don't pay attention to that other stuff. That's another way of going through your profession. So I'm looking for the cops of all races. Um, and there are they're, they're wonderful Latino officers. There are wonderful African-American officers, yeah, of wonderful female officers, wonderful white officers. So I'm talking about in my editorial, the quote that, that, that you have from the, the African-American supervisor who was here in the Rodney King days, uh, you know, he or she was, is, is, you know, had a had a had a thirty something year career in LAPD, and that officer is saying, "Connie, we're back to the days of Rodney King. It's rancid and hostile to black officers. Our our authority is challenged, but it's worse now because you have the MAGA white cops who have been liberated in their racism by the larger national politics. That sort of." fascist white supremacy politics that are going on at the national level with the, with the Trump party and the MAGA party, that's, that's licensed them. And as you said earlier, we had police officers at the insurrection. There are, there are, are there are firefighters who took selfies, LA, LA fire department, uh, firefighters who took selfies at the insurrection and posted them. 
and it's Fireman for Trump. You can look it up. They're here. They're they're in our fire department. So you've got you've got you've got uh, the MAGA stuff. You've got an anti you've got you've got an anti black faction within Latino officers, um, but it's not the majority of Latino officers. You got to remember, this is a majority Latino police force right now. The largest ethnic group inside of LAPD is Mexican American, and I'm happy about that. That's a great thing. The thing that we have to make sure is that whatever dominant group there is, I don't care if it's Italian, Mexican American, African American, they need to be the cops who care about the poorest communities. Mm. Yeah, we're talking with attorney Connie Rice. Um, when we come forward, continuing the conversation, uh, two points I want to make sure we get to. One, you state that uh, due to the fact that the interim police chief, um, Dominic Choi, it is a long-time LAPD um, you know, worker and, and an ally of more that we may never get a real, the mayor may never get a real clear-eyed assessment of where we are and where we need to go. And the other question that we need to look at is this insider-outsider, because, um, you know, d- we saw what happened with Chief uh, Willie Williams. Well, if if you remember or you don't remember, it was not the most effective uh, reign, if you will, uh, of a chief. How do we get real change? How do we get a real movement? Is it somebody from outside the department who, you know, can be truly objective, or is it somebody from inside who those inside agitators that you're talking about that can make real change um, without being peer pressured or, um, you know, blue on blued into uh, business as usual. We'll talk about that when we come forward with Connie Rice on KBLA Talk 1580. More of First Things First with Dominique DePrima when we come forward. Ancestors' favorite radio station, radio station, and your favorite morning show host. Let's get back to Dominique DePrima right now. Right now, right now, we are talking with author, public intellectual, and civil rights powerhouse attorney Connie Rice. Um, quoting from your op-ed here, it says uh, this means Mayor Karen Bass is unlikely to see a competent assessment of the deepest challenges the, that await a new permanent chief, which will only make it harder for who, her to tap the right candidate. Uh, how do we fix that? Well, you get an independent assessment, an assessment by folks who really know LAPD from the inside out, but are not part of the current leadership who have to protect what they've done. And so the current, the current interim that they chose is, is a very safe choice for those who don't want the problems on earth. My, my editorial is saying, look, one of the deepest problems that has reemerged at a level that requires you to address it. Instead, what this set of leaders under Chief Moore has done is suppress any discussion of race or gender or other kinds of discrimination that, that's raising its ugly head again. And um, if you if you kill the messenger, Dominique, you're not going to know what the problems are. <laughs> if you if you have, if you put the message out, don't bring me bad news, or you will have you know you'll get freeway therapy. I'll send you out the Devonshire division. You know, if you're going to punish people for bringing issues to you, guess what they do? They they bury them. What my what my editorial is saying is that you, right now the current leadership of LAPD is kill the messenger leadership, and they have suppressed it over and over and over again. They've been brought problems by African American officers saying, "Look, 
He was, you know, look, look, we got a problem here. And every time they're told, don't discuss race, it just creates a problem. It's too harmful to morale. What they're saying is we don't we don't know how to counter this. We don't know how to deal with it as leaders of LAPD. So we're going to put our heads in the sand and pretend it's not there. Well, you know what happens when you do that. So you um, um, my, I, I cite studies. When you've got three studies that tell you you've got binary racial thinking, which means racist thinking, You've got you've got serious radicalization because you've got the California state auditor saying you've got really toxic views against immigrants, LBGTQ, anti-black, anti-female. You've got this stuff raging and surging through policing in general, law enforcement in general, and you don't know how to deal with it. That's the California state auditor. So it's not just cutting rice saying this. I mm-hmm. cite three studies that say anti-black racism is surging within policing and you need to deal with it. What I'm saying about the the LAPD selection process is LAPD is in a state right now where you need an honest assessment. Sometimes things are okay. They're going in the right direction. LAPD is not on the right track. And when LAPD is not on the right track, you need an independent or less connected outsider who is fluent in LAPD to say, you know, here's what's really going on. Here's what they don't want you to know. And we had a couple of former chiefs who actually did uh, an autopsy on the failed protest response that LAPD had. They, they, didn't, they did not respond to the George Floyd protests in the right way. There are now three reports. Well, the first report was done by a former LAPD chief. They should have chosen her to be the independent assessor. So we'll see if, if, if Mayor Bass will, will have her commission get an independent assessment because the interim chief, Dominic Choi, can't do it, and nobody else on the 10th floor, which is LAPD's uh, leadership floor, uh, executive floor. Nobody else on the 10th floor can invest. You can't investigate your friends and you can't investigate mm-hmm. yourself. <laughs> yeah, that's true. You mentioned that uh, Mayor uh, Karen Bass has created an, an office of community safety, and she still has the office of public safety. So um, I guess it's it's similar to what we were talking about with the DA's race war. We don't have to choose between being safe or having reform. We can have safety and reform. You agree with that? Absolutely. When we demonstrated it, that's what yeah. the community safety partnership policing is about. That's what gang intervention is about. Gang intervention reduces violence on the streets at a level that saved almost $150 million over three years to the county. Um, so we know we, we've demonstrated the concept of holistic safety, wraparound safety, go after safety, not mass incarceration. So we already know how to do that. You do, but, but the current leadership in LAPD does not believe in that. They want to go back to the easier policing where you just do shock and awe. You just stop everybody you see. It's enforcement. It's easier to do. It takes a whole lot more effort to sit down with leaders of a community and say, okay, how do we make things safe? That takes leadership. That takes, that takes skills that you don't learn in a police academy. And so I don't blame the cops for saying, wait a minute, that's not what I signed up for. I signed up for car chases and stopping and mass stop and frisk. And I signed up for the enforcement side. I get that. But what we're saying is that's not what communities need. 21st century policing needs safety. And the question of insider-outsider, I know, you know, famously the LAPD brought in Willie Williams, a black uh, chief who was not from Los Angeles. Um, And we kind of can, I can kind of see advantages with both. Where are you on that? Uh, Here's the deal. You can't just choose a chief. Most 
commissions, police commissions, and most mayors make the mistake of thinking, you know, if I were interviewing, I would ask the person who's being interviewed, who's going for chief, who are you bringing in? Who's going to be your court? Like a king with a court or a queen with a court, right? Yeah, we saw that with <laughs> Villanueva for sure. I mean, you know, in the sheriff's department. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Who's your team? And and so when Willie Williams was brought in, I knew that wasn't going to work. And I told Mayor Bradley that, and he kind of hung the phone up on me. <laughs> he was like, he wasn't pleased with my reaction. <laughs> I said, Mayor, this ain't going to work. You know, LAPD will never let him be chief, and they didn't. So for me, it's not inside, outside. The be- the most effective chief I've seen is Charlie Beck. The second most effective chief I've seen was Chief Bratton. He was an outsider, but he brought his mafia with him. <laughs> he cleared out the top. He brought his people with him so that his program would get enacted, not sabotage. Something notably so, you can't yeah. do if you're district attorney, by the way. <laughs> exactly. You get well, who no, you, you get. Can. Huh? You, well, well, you can in your own way. You can mm. create a shadow okay. court. Mm-hmm. You can create a shadow court. Uh, you, got, you just have to know how to work the bureaucracy. Mm. Okay, right. Connie Rice for DA. Um, <laughs> <laughs> But now, I mean, we're talking about, um, you know, there's a lot of rumors going around about who could be that next chief. And, and we're also hearing there's going to be an exhaustive search. What do you think we, the public, especially those of us who consider ourselves reform-minded, progressives, what ought we be doing at this point? Seeing who the search firm is, what criteria, and what is the mission of the search firm? Because the search firm can do everything from just move paper, or they can actually define the search. you got to know what kind of search. This will be my 10th LAPD chief search. <laughs> wow. Um, so, and, you know, six mayors, nine chiefs, this will be the 10th. Um, so it's been, it's been 40 years of this. So there can be a, a search can be whatever you define. We need the mayor's vision. She has a vision for what she wants in her first chief, and you shape the search around the mayor's vision. Um, if the mayor, if you know, if the mayor needs help, expanding her vision, then the experts on her commission can do that. And outside community members can help have input into that. Next to the questions, once you get the search firm and you get the mayor's vision for what she wants in the chief, what are the questions that tell you which candidate is best to carry out that vision? Then you have the assessment. What are the problems? What are the fires that the next chief has to put out that that have been buried and are smoldering right now? That Do they have the skills to put out those kinds of problems? So that's why I say you need the assessment, you need the mayor's vision, and you need, you need to shape the search to produce what the mayor is asking for. And luckily she has at least one person on the commission who, who knows what they're doing. Um, so, so Dare I ask who that is? <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm, I shall remain nameless. Oh, um, but But... <laughs> But then after that, then they've got to go through the interview process, and the commission gives three names to the mayor. If the mayor doesn't like those names, she can ask for three more. And she can pull anybody she wants in into the search. It's her choice. Yeah. So um, there's a lot to be done here, um, and and hopefully the mayor will get the information she needs to uh, set it up right and choose the right person. Some of those fires are not so hidden, such as please stop killing us. I mean, I think, you know for all the reforms and changes, and you make the point at the end of this piece, this is not your grandfather's LAPD. We have made progress, but yet we're still one of the deadliest police departments in the nation consistently all the time. Well, you got to look at this historically. They're actually doing far fewer killings than they used to. So if you look at the last 50 okay. years, 
No, no, no. I mean, I, this, this is the problem. I, I'm so old that I was back in the day when, you know. <laughs> Whatever, <laughs> Attorney Rice. So it's all relative, right? It's like, it's like talking to your great-grandmother <laughs> who, who experienced slavery, and you're, like, complaining about the current condition. <laughs> and she's like, baby, you don't even know. <laughs> you have got nothing to complain about. Get out there and fight. <laughs> so it's, it's, it's all relative. Now, what we're talking about, you know, police have a license to kill. The question is, you know, do they use it in the right circumstances and is it absolutely necessary? Most of the time you're looking at the facts and you're thinking, you know, there were a lot of alternatives here. This person did not need to die. And, and but, but a lot of that requires changing the conditions in which the police are doing their policing. Hmm. Because you've got folks who, who don't know communities that are this poor. They don't understand what's going on and they panic. Yeah. And um, then you've got the guys who are just hostile to the community. So that's what I'm talking about. When you have the right police matched to the community and the community backs those cops, that's when you've got safety policing. You've got partnership policing. You've got problem-solving policing. Attorney Connie Rice, as always, it's been enlightening and engaging. Thank you so much. Great to be on, Dominique. Take care. Dr. Uche Blackstock, MD, is next on KBLA Talk 1580.